the gentlemen in the aisles have Bibles for you. If you forgot one or don't have one, they've thought of everything. So if you need a Bible, uh, throw your hand up, get their attention somehow. You can keep that Bible. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. And you will find that Bible has a bookmark in the text that we will be considering this morning in Hebrews chapter 13. What uh, kinds of things come to your mind when you hear the word solidarity? What kind of stories are you familiar with in which you have heard of great displays of solidarity? People who have decided, a person or individuals who have decided to stand up with, some, with a group of people who are suffering or a people who are facing some sort of injustice. What kind of stories do you think of when you think of that? Something that, that I heard recently about is a story of a group of people called the Freedom Riders. I don't know if you have ever heard of the Freedom Riders, but the Freedom Riders were, uh, were active during the 60s. Right around 1961, the Supreme Court had passed down rulings that were desegregating. And even though the Supreme Court had, had made those decisions, uh, as, you, as we all know, America was still deeply divided, deeply segregated. And the same courts that had set that ruling were unable unable or unwilling to uphold the ruling. And so our African-American brothers and sisters were suffering a great injustice. One of the things that we're most familiar with is is because of Rosa Parks is the bus system. Something as simple as riding public transportation was, for many people, very unjust. Blacks and whites were not allowed to ride together in the same seat or even in the same part of the bus. And even though the Supreme Court had made a ruling that that was not to be anymore, it was still a widespread practice in many parts of the South. And so the Freedom Riders were an activist group that decided to ride from Washington, D.C. down into the South on a bus. And it was the the group of people that first did it were about half black and half white. And they decided to challenge and test the ruling that the Supreme Court had made. They were going to ride together on the bus in the same seats down south. And they encountered a little bit of opposition as they went. Uh, But the further south they got, the more opposition they experienced until they arrived in Alabama. And in Alabama, the, bus, the, the tires of the bus were slashed, and the, the riders of the bus were beaten with pipes, bats, chains, and the bus was firebombed. All while the police did nothing. And in fact, the local government actually condoned what was going on. Many of those people were beaten very badly, were taken to a hospital for treatment, where they were refused treatment. And so they had to be taken to another hospital that would agree to provide the medical care that they need. These are people that saw another group of people suffering, 
and wanted to show solidarity with them in that. They wanted to, to stand with them, to support them, and they were willing to do that at great personal cost to themselves. Would you get on a bus and ride to a place where you know you could potentially be beaten and killed when it's half a nation away? These people did. The Bible tells us that there is another group of people with whom we need to show solidarity. There's another group of people that we need to support. And you can see that in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3. Let's read Hebrews 13.3 together. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Today, I've already mentioned and you've already seen in your program, today is the day, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about that. I thought it would be appropriate to spend a few minutes reflecting upon that because sometimes it seems like the suffering that our brothers and sisters in Christ undergo on a daily basis seems so far away, it's almost like it isn't happening. But it is. Do you realize that there are almost 70 countries in which imprisonment, rape, torture, and death are a regular part of life for believers. Do you realize that every five minutes, a Christian is martyred for his or her faith? That means by the time you and I are comfortably seated at a local restaurant this afternoon and have got our order in, probably around 25 people will have been killed from now until then. You can use statistics to make any point that you want, so cut it in half. People are dying every hour for their faith. Let me give you a few snapshots of headlines from recent articles of persecution. In Maldives an island nation south of India that I had to look up because I'd never heard of. In Maldives, a teacher was just deported because he was found to be in possession of a Bible. Just in possession. They found one in his house. In Somalia, all of these, all of these headlines have happened within the last three or four months, by the way. In Somalia, 17-year-old Guled Jama Mukhtar was beheaded as he got ready for school one morning after his parents had left, Christian family. On August 31st of this year, a Chinese pastor nicknamed Uncle Z was released from a seven-year and six-month imprisonment. He has been imprisoned five times in his life and has spent no less than a quarter of his life in jail. Christian organizations that tried to arrange for his release were unsuccessful, And here's what he said when he was released to those organizations. I am happy that you and others tried to arrange for my release, but in one way, I'm happy that you failed. You almost made a big mistake. If you had been successful, there would be no church in that prison today. Is that what you or I would say? 
Iranian pastor Youssef Nadarkhani, I'm doing the best I can with pronunciations, has been in prison since 2009. He is sentenced to death for refusing to recant his belief in Christ. They've, the Iranian government has tried a ver- various tactics to try to get him to recant, including imprisoning his wife for life, leaving his nine- and seven-year-old sons to fend for themselves. His wife has since been released from prison, but Yusuf is still there, still sentenced to death. At a recent hearing, when he was urged again to recant, he said this, You ask me to recant. Recant means return. What do you wish me to return to? The blasphemy that I was in before Christ? These are brothers and sisters across the globe that it doesn't matter what you throw at them. They're not turning away from Jesus. And you and I live lives that are relatively insulated from all of these sorts of things. I mean, think about your life. I think about mine. It is nothing like what these folks suffer. And so I want us to think this morning then, given the circumstances that we find ourselves in, how can we be responsible? What can we do to remember those in prison as if we were? And those who are mistreated as if it was our own body? And I I ask you to think about this morning, recognizing that it's something that I am woefully short of obeying. Whenever, any, whenever anyone preaches, there's always a gap between what the person is saying and what they're actually doing. You recognize that. I, of course, recognize it. But sometimes that gap is greater. And in this instance, for me, it is. And I'm admitting that to you. I'm admitting to you that I have gotten beat up as I've been studying this and reflecting on it. And it's not my intention to come in here this morning and then beat you up. I really, do, I, I really mean that. I have no intention of coming in here and trying to make all of us feel as bad as possible and as guilty as possible. I really don't want to do that. Because I've spared you the details of some of these stories. Okay, we could get into detail. And I, and I could make you cry. And I could make myself cry. And I can make, you all, make us all leave and feel so terrible about ourselves. And what that's going to do is motivate you for a little while. You're going to be motivated by guilt for a little while. But eventually, with all the stuff that's going on in our lives, guilt as a motivation is only going to take you so far. Because eventually, your life is going to catch up to you again, and you're going to forget to feel guilty. So that really is not my intent. What I do want is to try to, in some way, affect your heart. Because before our hands are affected, our hearts have to be affected. What I don't want to do is make you guilty. What I want to do is for there to to be a heart change. If your heart needs to change like mine does, then I hope this morning that this would go a little bit 
a little bit of a way towards making that happen. So this message obviously comes from a very simple text. Remember those in prison as if you were in prison and those mistreated as if it were your own body. I can't pull out some Greek, fancy Greek exegesis to tell you the hidden meaning behind these words that are just going to open this and unlock it for you. It's simple and it's straightforward. But what I want us to do is I want us to reflect on the text. And I want us to think, first of all, about how you can see in the take-home truth how you can support those who suffer. What do you need to believe? What does your heart have to grasp so that you can support those who suffer, as this text says? What, what has to be reality for you? What do you have to get a hold of to, believe that, to, to, to start doing what Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 says? Well, the first thing I, th- thing I think you need to see is that Jesus is a glorious treasure to be prized by all people. The first thing that you're going to need to believe if you're going to stand in support of those who suffer is that Jesus is a glorious treasure to be prized by all people. You're going to have to see Jesus as the most glorious thing that anyone could possibly have. The greatest prize in the universe. What is it that makes people willing and able to forsake possessions, vocation, family, and yes, even their own lives. What is it that could make somebody be willing to let go of that? Something better. And that something is Jesus. You and I are never going to be able to get, catch a vision for supporting those who suffer, or dare I say it, even suffer ourselves, if Jesus isn't the greatest thing that you and I could possibly possess. It's not going to be on our radar. We're not going to get it. It's going to be something that's happening a million miles away. It might as well be something that's happening on Mars unless you catch a vision for how glorious Jesus is. You live for what you treasure. You invest in what you treasure. Think about the things that you devote time and money to. There are organizations that you care about. Public services, school systems, police systems, uh, political systems, clubs things that you find valuable, things that you're willing to work for. Why? Why are you able to do that? Because you think they are valuable. But we need to see Jesus as overarchingly more valuable than any single one of those things. We need to be able to say, you can have the whole world, but I need Jesus. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. It's all about how Jesus is better than everything else. Twelve straight chapters of why Jesus is better. All of the things that you value and prize and think about and spend money and time on, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. I have those things too. But Jesus is better than every single one of them put together. 
and Jesus is worth losing all of them to keep. Hebrews says, starts right out with talking about how glorious Jesus is in chapter 1 and verse 3. You don't have to turn to all these because I'm going to try to tick through them quickly. But it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The book starts out with a picture of Jesus as the radiance of God's glory and the one who is sustaining life on earth. It may be gravitational pulls and electrons and magnetism and a water cycle and all sorts of naturalistic explanations for why the world keeps going and why you can take another breath and why you can have another heartbeat. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus sustaining all of those things. In chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that Jesus, who sustains all things, who is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That radiant display of God's glory was willing to taste death, so that death is not a finality for you and I. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, calls Jesus our high priest. And it encourages us, encourages us in, in verse 16 to come boldly to the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer loss and to hurt. Jesus knows what it's, knows what it's like to be tempted. And he says, on the basis of the fact that I can be sympathetic to you and on the basis of the work that I have done for you, come boldly to the throne of grace. Jesus is coming back, chapter 9 and verse 27 tells us. This time he's not coming to bear sin. He's coming to gather us to himself. He's coming with final salvation. He's coming to make everything new. Chapter 12 and verse 2 encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a finality to the work that Jesus has accomplished, and we are to look to Jesus from start to finish for our faith. That is the picture of Jesus that the book of Hebrews paints for us, and you won't find anything like that that can touch that anywhere. You won't find it at the mall, or at a car dealership, or on a beach, or on an S&P 500 index. You won't find it anywhere. Because none of those things can do that. None of those things can do that for you. And that's what makes Jesus more valuable than all of those things put together. We need those things. We can use those things. But none of them are as good as Jesus. And you and I are are going to empathize and stand with and support those who are suffering as an act of worship. Because really... Our supporting those who suffer is an outgrowth of something else. Okay, we can't get the cart before the horse and say that our first and foremost responsibility is to support those who suffer. If you're looking at chapter 13, there's all kinds of commands in quick succession. 
In verse 1, it says, keep on loving each other as brothers. In verse 2, it, it says that we should be showing hospitality. In verse 3, it says that we should remember, be remembering our brothers and sisters who are suffering. What are all those things an outgrowth of? They're an outgrowth of worship. Because the end of chapter 12 and verse 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. What does that look like? What does is, what is acceptable worship of God look like? It looks like the stuff in chapter 13. So really, the degree to which we obey this is the degree in which we see Jesus is valuable or worship him. So, if we aren't supporting those who suffer, then frankly, our Jesus is too small. You are going to catch a vision. You are going to be on the same page as people in other parts of the country when Jesus is as glorious to you as, as he is to them because he's worth it. When you really start to get who Jesus is, you realize that he is worth giving up to keep. Secondly, something else that you need to believe. You need to believe that true disciples are engaged in the mission. True disciples are engaged in the mission. If you're going to support those who suffer, if you're going to stand with those who suffer, then you're going to have to see that what you're doing is, this, that, that what you're doing is the same as what they're doing. You're going to see, have to see yourself as connected to them. You're going to have to see yourself as a missionary. Too often we think of the Great Commission that's given one place in the Gospels in Matthew 28 as something that missionaries obey. Missionaries are this special brand of people who are able to give up more than the rest of us and who are more focused on giving the gospel to people than the rest of us. And so when we start thinking about the Great Commission, we start thinking about it in terms of what other people do. And we think, yeah, the fields are white already to harvest. We need to go and make disciples. Let's find some people to go do that for us. But that isn't what the New Testament says at all. We need to see ourselves as missionaries. That's a point that our friend, Hal Selstead, was making to us. He was saying that true disciples are engaged in the mission. They see themselves as missionaries. Every one of us in this room needs to see ourselves as missionaries. All disciples are missionaries. The Great Commission is a cycle. Jesus gave that commission to disciples. And the disciples' job was to go out and preach the gospel. And to those that respond in repentance and faith to the gospel, they're to be baptized, and then they're to be taught everything that, has been, that Jesus commanded. That's the Great Commission. It's a cycle where disciples create more disciples. And it's not something that a specialized group of people do. It's something that we all do. Because we have become anesthetized to the fact that we are all disciples and thus all missionaries, we see what other people in other countries are going through as something that's quite different from what we have. But it isn't. We're all missionaries. We're all disciples. We're all to be people on mission. We need to wake up every day and think of ourselves as missionaries to the people around us. We need to wake up every day and think of our jobs and the places that we go as our mission field 
because there's a whole world of people out there that are giving their lives to do the same thing. And we're never going to see our connection to them if our lives are simply about us. If our lives are simply about hoping that they get the job done and and, and gee, I, I'm praying for them. I hope they get the job done. We've got to see ourselves as engaged in the same thing. And you also, letter B under that, you need to feel your connection with others engaged in the mission. Okay, true disciples are engaged in the mission. You need to see yourself as a missionary, and you need to feel your connection with others engaged in the mission. I use that word feel intentionally. Because isn't that what the verse says? It says, remember those in prison as if you were in prison. And those who, who are mistreated as if it were happening to your own body. If that isn't the language of feeling, I don't know what is. This verse is telling us that we need to feel the connection that should be there between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are engaged in the mission. We focus often, and rightly so, on the local church. And we talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the body analogy, how we're all connected, each part of the body is connected to one another. And we apply that specifically to the local church. But I don't think we should do that to the exclusion of the universal church. The universal church is, is, is all believers everywhere. And... The believers in the New Testament didn't focus exclusively on me and mine. They felt an interconnectedness with one another. They felt that that another church's failure or success in the mission was their failure or success in the mission. They saw themselves as co-laborers in the harvest field, each one supporting the other. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and just give you a brief brief glimpse of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we see churches helping other churches. Verses 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians 16 say this, Now, about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So we, ch- we see churches taking collections for other churches. Remember the church in Jerusalem? It said they had all things in common. Why did they have all things in common? Because they were communists? No, because they were suffering persecution. And so they shared goods equally because they had to. They felt connected to one another. And we see the early church doing the same. We see in, in verse 6 further evidence of this in, in 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 5, Paul says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. So we, churches help, we see churches helping church planters. And then in verses 15 to 18, we see more people seeing their connections to one another. Verses 15 to 18 say this, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. 
and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking for you from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. I could go to several other places in the New Testament to try to demonstrate to you the fact that there, there was an interconnectedness between the churches. But do you get the point that I'm saying? What people on the other side of the world aren't engaged in something that's completely different from what we're doing. We're all working on the mission to Jesus, that Jesus has given us together. And we need to deeply care about the spread of the gospel in those places. And we need to care about supporting our brothers and sisters in those, pl- those places who are paying the price. You're not going to support those who suffer if you don't believe that Jesus is a glorious treasure to be prized by all people. If, you don't be- if you've got to believe that true disciples are engaged in the mission. Thirdly, you've got to see that suffering is a necessary part of discipleship. Suffering is a necessary part of discipleship. I don't know how else to say that. I don't know of any way around it. I don't know of any way to sugarcoat it or to explain it away. But suffering is a part of being a disciple. It just is. And many times I'm afraid I, and maybe some of you, have dedicated our lives to the avoidance of any sort of pain or risk. Our whole life is devoted to that. Now, I'm not saying that we should want pain or that we should be foolish in taking risk. But friends, if our lives are devoted to that, then nothing is ever going to happen to advance the gospel because the gospel always advances at great cost. There aren't any disciples who get to sign up for certain parts of the mission but get to leave certain parts of the mission out. If we think about Jesus, the radiance of God's glory the most treasured possession that you can have. What was Jesus' time on earth here like? Did Jesus suffer? Hebrews tells us that again and again. A verse we already read from chapter 2 and verse 9 says that Jesus suffered death, suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In verse 10 it says it pleased God that to make the author of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. It was part of the completion of Jesus' mission while he was here to purchase redemption for you and I through suffering. It wouldn't be complete any other way. Chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that he suffered as a son. Chapter 2 and verse 18, he suffered when he was tempted. Chapter 12, verses 2 to 3 say, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured 
the cross. Hebrews speaks over and over again that Jesus had to suffer. And the Bible tells us that suffering is the pattern of those who follow him. Not just anybody can be Jesus' disciple. There isn't this open call that the Bible says of, hey, anybody that wants to can do it. Several times throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches people that there are conditions by which you cannot be his disciple. And one of, the re- one of the ways that you cannot be his disciple, one of the things that will prohibit you from being his disciple, is if you are unwilling to take up the cross that you must carry when you follow him. So much for a user-friendly message. But suffering is part of the package. And Hebrews also tells us that suffering is something that we can expect as, as followers of Jesus. In chapter 10, verses 32 and 34, the author of Hebrews says this, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. I see traces of Uncle Z in that verse. I'm sorry you failed because I wouldn't have been able to plant that church in jail. These are individuals who joyfully accepted the confiscation. Joyfully. They didn't just accept it. They joyfully accepted it because they recognized that they were following in the footsteps of Christ and the path of Christ is a cross-shaped path. It is one of self-denial. And as C.S. Lewis says, a crucifixion of the natural self is the passport to everlasting life. Nothing that has not died will be resurrected. You want to gain life? you got to be willing to lose it. Jesus turned away. We think of all these huge crowds following Jesus. Jesus turned away hundreds of people because that's not exactly what they were signing up for. And in chapter 11, verses 32 and 38, this is the hall of faith. We commonly refer to it as the hall of faith. These are individuals who believed in God's promises even though they faced great adversity and even though they never really saw realized what had been promised to them. And I'm not going to read all of those verses, but in verse 32, I am going to read them. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, and we say, yeah, that's what it's like to be on Jesus' side. That's what I want victory and power and success. And that is the experience for lots of people. But those verses go on to say, others were tortured, 
and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. There are people of whom this world is not worthy because they are suffering those kinds of things today. And they realize that Jesus is totally worth it. Fourthly, you're never going to support those who suffer unless you realize that you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. What is it that enables believers to be able to let go of their lives? It's realizing that they are letting go of that for something that is infinitely better. It said, our verses that we read in 10, 34 to 36, said that the reason they were able to stand with those who were mistreated, the reason they were able to joyfully accept the confiscation of their property is because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. They realized that you can take my house, you can take my family, you can take my life, but you can't take Jesus. And I have an eternity ahead of me of glory that nothing can touch. And I would be a fool to hold on to this in exchange for that. This is a hard message to preach. A hard one. Chapter 12, in verse 28 says, bases what we are to do on the fact that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Chapter 11, verse 16 says that these heroes of the faith desired a better country, a better city, better everything. And they were willing to endure that because they saw that they had nothing to lose. What would happen if you and I were able to let go of now? Because we realize that we don't have anything to lose. There's something dangerous about a person who's lost everything. Because you can't take anything from them now. And they can just go with reckless abandon. Because they got nothing to lose. And we're not going to stand in support of those who suffer We're not going to care for them as if they were ourselves until we really catch that vision, until we really believe that. And and I'm not trying to hit you too hard because I'm hitting myself, okay? I don't know what I'm willing to let go of, but I bet I'm holding on to a lot. So given these things, given the glory of Jesus and the fact that you and I are to be engaged in making Jesus' name famous, and embracing the fact that, we're, that, that some people in some areas of the world are going to have to suffer to do that, and recognizing the fact that it's totally worth it, let's ask ourselves a, a, a question again about this text that we've looked at this morning. What does it mean to remember? What does it mean to remember? 
the command to remember those in prison as if you were in prison and those mistreated as if it was your own body is not passive. It's not just having a vague awareness that somewhere in the world bad things are happening and when I'm made aware of it, I shake my head disapprovingly. That is not remembering. The thief on the cross next to Jesus said, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said he would. But did Jesus say, I will occasionally remember and be thankful the fact that you were that one guy that wasn't yelling at me while I was dying? Was that what it meant for Jesus to remember? No. He said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Remember is an action word. It has hands and it has feet. Here's how one person has defined it. You can see this here at the bottom of your outline in the page I gave you. Remembering defined is compassionate concern expressed in practical care. Compassionate concern expressed in practical care. It means doing something. We're supposed to express practical Uh, concern and care for those who suffer and for those who are mistreated. And let me tell you, that can get overwhelming. It's overwhelming to me. It's overwhelming to me because there's a big world out there and there's lots of problems. And the way that we're now connected to one another through a variety of social means you can know about incidents that are happening all over the world like that. And if you're like me, you can easily be drawn to despair of, okay, I don't even know where to start. And so I'm going to suggest a place for us to start. See, I should have been on that the whole time. Tells you how good I am at that. I am suggesting... I'm suggesting that we start with the people that we have connections to. These people whose names I'm not reading off, places that I'm not reading off, but these are the people that we support. Do you know who they are? Could you have written down a list of them? Do you have any idea what's going on in any of their lives? Do you know anything about the country that they're in? Do you know anything about what the people are going through that they minister to? I'm not, using this, I'm not using this message as a whip, remember? I really meant that. I'm not trying to drive you in the ground. But what I'm trying to say is, if you can capture a vision of Jesus, it's going to motivate your heart in worship, and you're going to want to support people like this. Your heart is just going to want to do it. You're just going to want to care about what is going on in their lives. And you're going to stop at nothing to do so. In these countries, I'll just give you three little vignettes of things that are going on. Four years ago, in one of these countries, a group of men invited three believers to their place because they wanted to hear more about the Bible. When those three believers came there, brought their Bibles, brought their Bible study tools, the men that were there tortured them for three hours to death in one of these countries four years ago. 
And I'm not giving you any details about it. That's all I'm saying. The Kumars in India travel from village to village, going from door to door, telling people about Jesus. That's the only way they know to do it. They, don't send, they can't send out mailers, so they just go from house to house. And this year, they knocked on the door of a Hindu militant group who said, you know what we're able to do with you, to you, right? They didn't say, whoa, whoa, I don't, God's just revealed to us that this is not the village we should be in. We're, see you. In Kenya, where the Huffstetlers are, this week, someone threw a grenade into a church on Sunday and killed two people. That's the kind of stuff that's going on. So let's start somewhere. Instead of thinking the whole broad world, let's start with the people that we've got a connection to. And these are the people that we have connections to in countries in which there is suffering. So I'm asking you the question again, does remembering in your life look like what the New Testament probably expects it to look like? Or does it look like what it often looks like in my life? I know our church supports missionaries for a certain amount of money a month. So I'm sure they're getting a check. I don't think that's what they had in mind. We want to send them the check. They need the check. But they need more than a check. Okay? You write checks for things that you, that you just want to go away. You care about people that you're connected to. You care about your family I care about my body, and that completely changes the way I support them. So here are four things that you can do, and I know this is going long. Four things. You can pray, you can educate, you can give, and you can go. Pray, educate, give, go. And I don't know when I started, but I'm guessing I'm pretty close to over, so I'm going to just say a couple things about each one of these things and we'll be done. Prayer is something that you must labor in. Okay? The Bible talks about laboring in prayer. Paul, when he writes to his supporting churches and he informs them about the situations that are going on in those churches, what he says is, brethren, pray for us. Know what's going on. Care about the advance of the gospel. Care about the fact that I am mistreated or that those around me are being mistreated. If you're going to pray for these kinds of people, then you're going to have to care about the spread of the gospel. You're going to have to care about the people that we have connections to. And you're going to have to find out what's going on. We need to pray for them. We need to educate ourselves. There are a variety of means to do that, and we can talk about those things. We don't have time to talk about it, uh, talk about it right now. But for those of you with families, educate your children about the world. As, as Americans, we are very self-centered, and we care about what's going on right now where we are. Don't let your kids grow up without a global consciousness. Let them know that there are people otherwhere, other places in the world that they have a real connection to because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell them about that. Pray about that with them. Lead them in that. Make visible demonstrations of your priorities to your children. 
don't teach your children. None of us would teach our children by, by saying it to them that this, that this world and this life is all there is. But many of us teach our children by example that this is it. And we've got to squeeze every amount of enjoyment out of right now. Don't teach your kids that. Give your kids a global awareness. Show them. Sacrifice in small ways to show them that we, that we are not attached to this world. Educate them. Give money, resources, time. What would it take for you to, to bless one of the families that we support by finding out something that you could send them? What if it cost you a couple hundred bucks? What's a couple hundred bucks? To some of us, that's not doable. But to some of us, 200 bucks, when we think about it, that's a lot. But it's really nothing. I mean, we spend a couple hundred bucks like nothing. What would it take to give and bless? You could give of your time. Young people, there's a conference that's taking place in January called Not Ashamed of the Gospel. It's a conference that's meant to educate young couples or singles about what's going on in the world and how they can be involved in it. There's a registration cost, and it would take two or three days because it's during the days. But would that be a worthy investment of your money and your time? You can finally go. You can go. Maybe not permanently, but I know of a family who instead of going on a big vacation one year, they went to a country and visited that country, a third world country, and they visited the, some missionaries that they supported there, and they got to know the people there. And it changed their lives. You can great, create an environment in your house where your kids know that it's okay and worth going, where you don't hold on to your kids so tightly that they would never even consider going somewhere and giving up. So as I said earlier this morning, I want us to see not guilt, but the fact that Jesus is infinitely glorious and worth it. And if you're here with us this morning and you've never come to Jesus, then none of this makes sense apart from him. It is inconceivable that you would give up all of that stuff for him. But when your heart is changed and when you've truly captured a picture of who he is, everything changes. What do I do now? You do these things. You realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus is your Savior. You repent of your sin and you receive Jesus. You can do so as we close.